How to Play, Episode 20, Magic Realm. Hello once again and welcome to the How to Play podcast. This is episode 20 and today we will be talking about Magic Realm. This is your host Ryan Sturm and this episode was recorded on August 29th, 2010. If you're new to this show, well welcome. How to Play is a podcast about learning and teaching games. You're going to hear an explanation of the game Magic Realm, just as if I was sitting across the table from you and we were going to play the game together. The podcast is intended to be used for learning how to play the game by yourself or serving as a model on how to teach the game. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. And our discussion forum for the show is at a guild at BoardGameGeek. So I suggest you join up. We're getting close to 300. And discuss the show or any other topic you would like to talk about, about learning or teaching games. You can contact me there at the guild on BoardGameGeek or directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. If you find these podcasts useful, consider making a donation to the show. You can make a PayPal donation at my website, and if you make a donation of $20 or more, I will send you out a How to Play t-shirt. A few notes here before we get going. I want to make you aware of a local convention that's going on that I'll be attending for any of you in the Great Lakes area. EDOG is coming up. What is EDOG? Well, it used to stand for Eerie Day of Gaming, but it's become Eerie Days of Gaming because there's going to be a full weekend of gaming there in Erie, Pennsylvania. From Friday, November 12th to Sunday the 14th. I'm going to be there looking to play some great games, and I hope any of you listeners there that are within driving distance consider making the trip. The registration is very reasonable. It's just $15. They don't do event tickets or anything like that. They've got reasonable hotels in the area. It's focused mostly on board gaming with a bit of miniatures and collectible card games. My friend Scott Mellon is one of the organizers of this, and they do a great job down there in Erie, Pennsylvania. So consider attending this weekend of gaming fun. All information is at www.eriedog.com. That's E-R-I-E-D-O-G dot com. I'll also put a link to it there at the Guild. Go check it out, and I hope to see you there. In other How to Play news, I have begun creating How to Play teaching guides. What these are are outlines to go along with the episodes. So if you heard an episode and have to teach a game a couple weeks later, well, you can print this guy out, have it right there in the box, and so when you're ready to teach the game, you can just pull that teaching guide out, and you'll have a little outline to assist you in teaching the game. So far, we will have three. We will have Kalos, Lahav, and we'll have this game, Magic Realm, and hopefully a lot more will be posted there. So keep an eye out on the Guild for links to those teaching guides. At the Guild, I'm also accepting requests for future games on how to play. There is a thread there called Submit and Vote for Future Games on How to Play. And so you can either add a game to that list, or you can vote for other ones that you see there that you like. So there's a lot going on there at the Guild. You should swing on over and check it out. But without further ado, we need to get to today's game. Today's episode is the product of a lot of time spent learning this game and going through and figuring this game out this summer. And that's because we're tackling quite a beast today. Today's game is Magic Realm. You might be thinking, Magic what? Magic Realm! Magic Realm is a classic game that came out in 1978 and was designed by Richard Hamblin. 
It's a pretty amazing design, especially considering the date that it was designed, 1978. And 32 years later, this game still has a strong following and still played quite a bit today. Though this game has a legend of being the most complicated board game in the world. And having puzzled through this game for the last month and a half, I would say that that is not unfounded. Other than maybe your ASLs and your other war games, this is about as complex a game as you're going to find. The rule book is 122 pages. Seriously. It was very hard to breach at the beginning, just trying to get to that point to learn enough to play a, a real basic game of Magic Realm. And that's what this podcast is attempting to accomplish. It'll give you enough to get started, and from there, you can just dig deeper and deeper and appreciate all the layers and the richness and the depth of this great game. So, you probably have some questions for me. Like, why the heck would I want to take the time to learn a 32-year-old game with 122 pages of rules that I probably won't even be able to find a copy of? Well, that's a few questions. Let's take them one at a time. The first question, why should you learn Magic Realm? Well, why would you want to tackle this beast? I've got a bunch of answers for that. First of all, don't you want to say that you know how to play the most complicated board game of all time? Think of the glory and laud you'll receive from your fellow game geeks. But actually, it is a skill learning how to tackle a game of this complexity. And going through this experience will allow you to handle learning and teaching the most complicated of games. But there's a lot of other reasons to learn this game. It's a classic. It's a great game for being 30 years old. And if you're a person who loves games and sort of the development of games, it's great to see this accomplishment in grand game design that was done in 1978. Also, it has interesting mechanics. There are some really creative, unique mechanics in this game that you won't see anywhere else. It also is just a deep game system. This is a game to savor and enjoy one layer at a time. There's so much to learn that you can just dive into it and learn a little bit at a time. And that's what this podcast is going to try to help you do, is to take those hardest first steps and get you to know the basics of the game. And from there, you can just keep getting deeper into the richness of this design. There's so much variety in the game, from just the combat system, to the way that magic works, to these quest chits, to native populations on the board, to 16 different characters, each of which require their own approach when playing the game. The other thing that this game does is it gives you all of the flavor of a great D&D session or another role-playing game with the feel of a strategy board game. And if you explain what happened in the game, if you explain exactly what happened from turn to turn, there's just so much flavor in the game. You can really feel the theme. You also should learn this game because it is a fantastic solo game. A lot of people are always looking for games that they can play just by themselves. And this is a great challenging solo game. If you're looking for a, a great challenging game experience that you can have all by yourself, Magic Realm is the game. And you don't even need to own the game to try it out. What do I mean by that? Well, that leads me to your next question. Why would you want to learn to play a game that you can't pick up from your local game store? Well, the first answer to this is that you can play this game. You can play it on a computer program that a fan, Robin Warren, has designed called RealmSpeak. So if you learn the game from this episode, you can go on there and just play the game and give the game a shot. It's absolutely free, and it's a fantastic way to learn the game. 
In fact, if you listen to this episode and you load up this program, I'm going to guide you through your first game or two of this game. And by playing Realm Speak, that's really the best way to learn this game. And I can guide you through it in this episode. Now, what if you fall in love with this game and you absolutely want it and it's really hard to find? Well, I've got great news for you. There is a great new version of this game. It has completely updated graphics and it just looks beautiful. And it's available for free. Well, of course, the downside is is it is a print and play. So you have to take a little bit of work to put it together. Though it's not the most extensive print and play project. Uh, a little bit of printing on some cardstock or spraying it onto some chipboard, and you've got your own copy of this beautiful game. And thanks to graphic designer Karam, and that's what you should look for if you're looking for this, Karam's redesign, you've got a game that looks even better and is even more functional than the original game. Now, if you're lazy and you don't want to print your own game out, there are copies of this available. Yes, you're going to have to pay a little bit more than you would for your standard game, but it's really not out of the range that a person could afford. I got mine on a fluke on eBay. I, I bid on it and figured if I got it, I got it. I ended up getting it for 60 plus shipping, so for $70 I had this game, which is about the same as some of the other big new games that are coming out today. I scouted around a bit on the Geek. I can see you can get some used ones for 40 or 50 bucks, and you can get ones in a little bit better condition for around 80 or $100. So it's, it's not extraordinarily unreasonable if you want to go out and buy the original version. But let me go ahead and warn you that some of the redesigned work on this game has so improved the functionality that even if you get the original game, you're probably going to want to at least make the new redesigned counters because they so add to the functionality of gameplay. As some of the important statistics isn't printed on the chits and it becomes sort of a pain, you have to consult tables and that sort of thing. So I'd say the number one way to get this game is to make a copy of Karam's redesign. In fact, I'll probably end up replacing the counters from my game. I'll probably keep the hexes, but uh, remake the counters because they're just so much better. And finally, of course, if we drum up enough interest through this podcast and through other people talking and learning about the game, if enough buzz gets going about this game, it's my opinion that if there's enough buzz and enough excitement about any game, it will get a reprint. If it's something you want to see, we keep some buzz going. Who knows, maybe we can get a beautiful reprint of the game Magic Realm. All right, let's get to the complexity rating. Complexity rating. Magic Realm is a triple black diamond. It's the most complicated game in the world. Now this is a game that I really suggest that you play solo two or three times in order to learn the game yourself before you attempt to teach this to other people. And then if you're going to play it with other people, you're probably going to want just two or three players. And you're going to want to teach it to them just the way that you learned it. You need to learn it in layers. And that's the way that I'm going to teach it to you. I'm going to teach you only the parts you need to know to play your first game or two. I'm not going to get into all 120 pages of the rules. But of course, this is a game for gamers. It's for people who really like complex games and don't mind lots of rules. Because before you get started into a game, you're probably looking at a 30 minute to 1 hour rules explanation. 
All right, so let's get into it. You know how I always warn you that you should own the game and have it right in front of you before you learn how to play a game on how to play? Well, the great news is today you can all do that by using RealmSpeak. I want you all to go to the website. The website is realmspeak.dokid.com. Realmspeak, R-E-A-L-M-S-P-E-A-K dot dokid, D-E-W-K-I-D dot com, C-O-M. Go ahead, go put that into your laptop. You'll see that that's the website for Realmspeak. You're going to want to go to the downloads section and download those two files that you need and unzip them, and you'll be ready to go. So I'll just wait here. Don't worry about me. Maybe I'll go have some breakfast or something. Um, why don't you just hit pause while you download that game and you're ready to go. All right, you're back. Great. My breakfast was delicious. I had a wonderful omelet. Now, next, the thing that you need to download is the third edition of the Magic Realm Rules as a PDF. I recommend version 3.1. These are available at BoardGameGeek on the file section. It's really important that you have these. If you're really committed to learning the game, you should probably just print this whole thing out. But like I said, it is 122 pages. The most important part when you're learning the game is you're going to need some of the tables at the very end, the last 22 pages or so, especially the tables on those last five pages. So go ahead and download that, and I will be right here waiting for you when you're done. Good, you got your rule book? Excellent. So now some of you may not be in front of a computer right now, so you may just want to listen to this episode, and then afterwards, uh, go download these programs and give it a try. Of course, if you happen to own the game, you could try to play the game the old-fashioned way. Just set it up following the setup rules, and we will get started, and, and I will lead you through the game. All right, so we're about ready to get started. You've got Realm Speak open, and let's talk about how we're going to tackle this game at a manageable level. I'm going to guide you through a learning game. And I'm going to avoid some of the more complex elements of the game. Just stick to the basics so that you have a foundational understanding of the game. I'm going to suggest that we play a fighting character. I really recommend playing the Berserker. We'll do that to avoid using magic. We're going to skip anything that involves using magic. We're going to skip the horses, hiring natives. And we're going to learn using a solo game so we can avoid some other rules such as following or combat with more than one character. By the end of the sample game, or if you're playing a few of these sample games, you'll know the basics of the object of the game and how to win, the overall structure of the game, the basic mechanics of playing a turn, and an understanding of the combat system of one character fighting a single monster or a group of monsters. And that should be enough to get you started. The structure of this show is we'll have a hook which will introduce the game, a meat which will go through the meat of the rules, and then at the end we'll have a hamster where I give you some suggestions on playing your first game. Following that we will have some footnotes and musings. And the footnotes of course will have some important vegetables, little rules that you'll run into which will be important. And in the musings, I won't really be musing, I'll just talk about some of the next steps in the game, some of the uh, layers of the game that you can learn as you go. I'll also cite some further reading and research, give you some other places to look for materials for learning more about the game Magic Realm. So we're about to get started. This is the, usually the part of the podcast where I tell you to have the game right in front of you. Um, but let's just load up Realm Speak 
and play along as I explain the game to you. Of course, if you have an actual copy of the game, you can just set that up and follow along as I go. If you're using RealmSpeak, which is probably an easier way to go about learning this game, let's load that program up now. I'm going to go through some of the directions for getting the game started. It'll just take a minute. If you don't have the program in front of you, you might just want to fast forward to that hook. So let's get a game of RealmSpeak started. Here's what we need to do. You'll see the white screen and uh, command menu at the top. You're going to go to File, New Game to start a game, and you'll see this big options screen. There's one option we want to check. Just trust me on some of these options, okay? Uh, if we look on the left panel, there's a tab called Robin's House Rules. Click on that, and one of the available options is Persistent Chits. Check that. That's the only option we're going to mess with. We're not going to worry about the rest for now. Just hit Start, and that game should load up the board will construct itself automatically. Normally, if you're playing the game, that's sort of the first step is players take turns setting up these hexes into a board. So you'll see the board on your right side and your little play area where you're going to record all your actions and such on the left side. And you can move around the map. You can zoom in on it and zoom out. There's one more important option that I want you to change before we get started in this game, and that is changing the chit style. Go up to the top of the command menu, go to Options, go to Chits, and select Remodeled Chits. This is going to change the chits from the classic version, what they originally looked like, to the redesigned versions. The redesigned versions are much more useful because they have some statistics on them that were missing from the original chits. So this is very important for you when playing the game. All right, we're ready to start with our character. You should see in the upper left a green plus sign. Click on that and you'll be able to choose which character you want to be. Like I said, we're going to start with a, a nice basic character who's very easy to play for your first few games. And his name is the Berserker. The Berserker is strong. He's good at killing stuff. He can kill just about anything in the game as long as there's only one of them. He's pretty tough, and you don't have to worry about magic. And he doesn't die as easily as some of the other characters. So click on that Berserker. Click OK. There'll be a dialog box with some options you don't care about. Click on the one that says Fetch Inventory from Random Locations, and then click OK. There's one more game area I want to point out to you, as it's a very important area in the game. And that is the Setup card. The Setup card shows the locations of all the monsters. It also shows what treasures are in which areas. And this is a very important area in the game, one you're going to want to refer to a lot during the game. So if you look in that larger top box in the upper left, there'll be a small tab there that looks like it's got six little boxes on it. If you put your cursor over that, it'll tell you Setup Card. And if you click on that, you'll see this Setup Card with all the monsters on it, and it has treasures underneath. You can click on the different stacks to see what is in which stack. I'll explain more about this later. Also know that if you are going to play this face-to-face, -face, this is one of the challenges of playing this game. If you're playing this for real, you have to set this thing up in the beginning, and it has like 400 chits and little bitty cards that goes on it, and it's really a pain to do. So this is one of the big advantages of RealmSpeak. All right, you're ready to begin the game, and I'll guide you through the rest of this when we get to the meat. Let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Magic Realm. You are a brave hero, venturing off into a dangerous land 
willing to risk your life to fulfill your dreams of fame and fortune. You have one month, 28 days, to accomplish your goals. Each day, you'll be able to select up to four actions to do, including moving into the next clearing, searching the area, and hiding. You'll be moving to tiles with different terrain. You'll start in the relatively safe valleys and forests, but you'll have to venture into the caves and mountains in order to accomplish your goals. For somewhere in the caves and mountain tiles are hidden the secret treasure locations. But also, these areas are more dangerous and more likely to draw the attention of monsters. But venture into these dangerous locations you must, for in order for you to accomplish your goals and win the game, you must achieve a certain amount of fame and notoriety for slaying deadly monsters, and recover enough treasure from their hordes after bravely slaying these beasts or sneaking the treasure out right from under their noses. At the end of 28 days, if you are still alive, any player who has met his ambitions for fame and fortune by slaying enough monsters and recovering enough treasure will have won the game, and the one player who has achieved the most will be the victor. Part 2. The Meat. How to Play the Game. Okay, so you get to determine what your victory conditions are in this game. There are five possible options for what you want to try to shoot for. They are great treasures, spells, fame, notoriety, and gold. Great treasures are some particular treasures that have a red dot on them. Spells we're not going to worry about because we're going to be fighting character. Fame and notoriety you get from killing monsters generally. And gold you mostly get when you get treasures and you sell them, you'll get some gold. So you have to decide what you really want to shoot for. And you're going to choose victory point categories for which of these you want to pick. You have to pick five of these. For example, I could pick three fame and two notoriety. That means I'm focusing only on fame and notoriety, so I'm going to focus on just going and killing monsters. And if I've done enough of that, then I will do well and score high in the game. Each of these has a factor depending on the number of victory points that you choose. If you choose a victory point for great treasure, it's one to one. So if you put a one for victory points for great treasure, you only need to get one great treasure. For fame, you need 10 fame points for every one fame victory point that you put there. So if I put three fame, I'm going to need to get 30 fame points. Notoriety is 20 notoriety points for every one victory point, And gold is 30 gold for every one victory point. But you also have to subtract the amount of starting equipment that you get. Since you're just starting, let me just tell you what to put down there so you don't have to think about that. So if you're playing Realm Speak, click on that yellow box that says Setup VPs. We need to pick five victory points divided among these five categories. Here's what I'm going to suggest you choose. Put a one for great treasure, two for fame, one for notoriety, and one for gold. And then click OK. Now if you look in the lower left corner, there's a victory requirement button. Find that and push it, and that will bring up what you need to get in the game. It looks like, like an Oscar statue or something. So by putting those things in with the Berserker, your goals by the end of the game, based on those factors, are you're going to need to get one great treasure, you're going to need 20 fame points, 20 notoriety points, and 53 gold. 
because you're going to need to get 30 gold for the point, but remember you also subtract your starting equipment value, which for the Berserker is 23, so you're going to need 53 gold. So, what's your goals? Your goals is to kill some monsters to get those fame and notoriety points, and to recover some treasure. You're going to need to get one great treasure, and you're going to need to get some other treasures so you can sell them to get some money. Let's start the game. Now you've got your VP set up. There should be a box with a green circle that says go. You're going to want to click on that to begin the game. A dialogue box will pop up that says do you want to place character mission chits? No, you don't care. Click no and they'll put them on randomly. All right, let's look at the map board. All right, on the board, there are four types of terrain. Valleys, woods, caves, and mountains. And there are five tiles of each type on the board. So look at one of those valley tiles. The valleys are where the starting dwellings are going to start. And the dwellings are important because that's where characters start and where you can buy and sell items. It's important to know at the bridges, the bridges aren't forks. You can't sort of jump off the bridge and head off to the other path. Each road only connects two clearings. There aren't any four-way intersections. It's good to know with the circles, with the yellow numbers, these circles, they're called clearings. That's where your character is going to start in one of those, and he's going to travel from one to another. And he'll travel among those paths which connect the different clearings. Next you have the woods tiles. The normal woods tiles have three clearings on them, and there's nothing too special about them. They just connect the different tiles. There is a special woods tile called a deep woods tile, which we'll talk about in a bit. Cave tiles are any tiles that have caves on them. Caves are the black clearings with the white dotted lines on them, which mean they're underground. And then we have the mountain hexes. Mountain tiles have some mountain clearings on them. Any of the clearings that are encircled by sort of gray stone are considered a mountain, and those are a little tougher to move through. So it's important to be able to recognize these different tiles. Valleys, woods, caves, which have the black clearings on them, and mountain tiles, which have the clearings that are surrounded by the gray mountains. Because the type of terrain determines what kind of monsters are going to be there. There's going to be one or two chits on each tile in the game. And those chits are called warning, sound, or sight chits. And the function of those chits is they determine where the dwellings are, where and if monsters could appear. First of all, there are yellow chits. There'll be a yellow warning chit on every one of the 20 hexes in the game. The yellow chits that go on the valleys just determine which of the dwellings is in which spot. We've got a chapel, a house, an inn, and a guardhouse, and those chits are just going to determine which one of those goes where. And those will be put face up at the beginning of the game. All the other yellow warning chits are going to be face down, and so you're not going to know which ones are where. In the woods tiles, there's going to be two of those tiles will have secret dwellings called campfires that will appear. The other three will have chits that are going to be monster summoners. So three of those woods tiles will have a one in six chance of bringing monsters onto the board and attacking you if you end up on those tiles. And of course the caves and the mountains are each going to get a warning chit on them. And all those yellow chits, the chits on the caves, in the mountains, and three of the ones in the woods are going to be monster summoners. How do they summon monsters? Here's how they do that. After we plan our actions, we will roll what's called the monster roll. It's going to be one, two, three, four, five, or six. And this is one of the few times in the game where you just roll one dice. You don't roll two and take the higher. Look at the setup card window now. 
find the button that says Setup Card and click on it. If you click on that, you'll see all the different monsters that can appear in the game. You'll also see the clue words above those monsters. That tells you which of the chits summons which monster. So say for example, I finished my turn in a hex with a yellow warning chit that says Bones M. If you look in the row that says 4, the fourth row down, you can see the word Bones M right above the giant. That means that a giant is going to appear in my mountain tile if when we roll the dice I roll a 4. If I roll any of the other numbers, I should be safe. So know that in some of the woods, in all of the caves and mountains, they'll all have these warning chits. And all these warning chits will have a 1 in 6 chance of making a monster appear and attack you. Now the caves and the mountains are going to actually have two chits on them. They're going to have one yellow chit, and then they're either going to have an orange treasure site chit or a red sound chit. It's going to be your goal to try to find some of these orange treasure site chits. And that's why you want to head for the mountain tiles and the cave tiles. These red and orange chits are mixed up at the beginning of the game, and they're placed on the mountains and the caves. So when you head to a mountain hex, at the end of the turn, these chits are going to flip over, and you're going to have, of course, the yellow one, and then you're either going to get an orange or a red one. You're hoping for an orange one. Orange one has a big bad monster guarding it that could show up, but it also is the location of a whole bunch of treasure. So you're hoping that that shows up so you can go there and loot the treasure. It may turn out to be what's called a red sound chit, and all those do is summon more nasty monsters. So now instead of having just a 1 in 6 chance, you have a 2 in 6 chance of monsters appearing on that hex, meaning the caves and mountain tiles are more dangerous but they're also where the goodies are. So you're going to be searching out these caves and mountains, trying to get these orange sight chits to appear. Be aware that the deep woods is different than the regular woods. The deep woods is set up like a mountain tile, so the deep woods can have those sound and sight chits on it. So the deep woods is going to get two chits on it. So just be aware of that. Even though it's a woods tile, it's set up as if it were a mountains tile and could contain some of those goodies or extra monsters. Now one of the caves has what's called the Lost City Chit. And the Lost City Chit is a group of five orange and red chits. So when you find the Lost City, all five of those red and orange chits will go onto that hex. So it's going to be a very dangerous hex, but it'll also be a hex that probably has one or two of those treasure locations. In the mountains, there's the same sort of thing. There is a location called the Lost Castle. And the Lost Castle will have five of those red and orange chits. So it will be a very dangerous hex, but will probably have a couple treasure locations on it. So from those setup notes, you kind of get sort of your beginning starting strategy. You're looking to find one of those orange sight chits so that you can get the treasure from it. And these orange sight chits are in the caves and the mountains. So you need to head to those caves and mountains and try to find those orange chits and try to steer away from just those red chits. The orange and red chits are a little bit different than the yellow chits because the yellow chits just stay on the tile. And if monsters show up, they go immediately to your clearing and attack you. The orange sight and red sound chits have a clearing number on them, and they're going to start in a specific clearing. And if a monster is rolled from the setup chart, it goes to the clearing. And if you're in that clearing, they'll attack you. If not, they'll just stay at that clearing. And if they get rolled again, then they'll go to where you are on that tile and attack you. All right, so that's the map. Let's take a step back and look at your equipment and the things that you have in this game. In the lower left corner, if you're playing Realm Speak, is the box with all of your stuff. 
If you look on the lower left bit, there is a series of tabs. And those series of tabs will have a lot of different information for you to refer to during the game. One of the first tabs you're going to see in the lower left corner is a tab with some white squares on it. If you click on that, you're going to see what are called your action chits. You'll see some squares called fight chits and some squares called move chits and one chit called a berserk chit. These chits are all now active. If you're playing the game in real life, you would have your nameplate card and to show that they were active, you'd have all these chits on the left side of your name card. And as they got inactive or they got wounded, they'd go on the right side of your card. In the computer game, they use different colors to represent these different statuses of the chits. All right, now let's look at your equipment. If you click on the brown chest, you're going to see your inventory. You will start the game with a great axe and a helmet. And this is also where your treasures will show up when you find them. And you have active and inactive equipment. Uh, your weapon and your helmet start off as active. And if you get items, you want to make them active. You'll want to go to this inventory section and click on them and make them active so that you can use them. There's a lot of other tabs there that we're not going to worry about. Uh, spells, you don't have to worry about that. Discoveries, if you discover a hidden path in the game, this is where that will show up. Native relationships, there are different native groups and each character has a different set of relationships, how they feel about you. Hirelings, we don't care about that. Victory requirements, you're going to want to click on this quite a bit to see how you're doing in achieving those goals that we set at the beginning of the game. And then there's a note section, so you can type in anything you want to remember there in that section if you care. If you're playing the game in real life, all this information would be tracked on what's called a personal history pad. You would write down anything that you found, any of your spells. Uh, a lot of these things would be written down onto a, a character sheet, essentially. So that's what you've got. You've got action chits, mostly there for combat, and you've got your weapons, and all, all your information is there in that lower left corner. So it's time to talk about one of the most important mechanics of the game, and that's Magic Realm's dice rolling mechanic. You're going to have to roll dice quite a bit in this game, and the dice mechanic is generally always the same. Whenever you have to roll dice for something, you're going to roll two dice, and the higher of the two dice is your result. Of course, this changes the probabilities. A uh, six and a one are not equally likely to be rolled. And because of this in the game, you usually want to try to get the lower results are usually the more desirable or positive results. You're trying to get a one, two, or three usually. Fives and sixes are usually bad in this game. And of course, those are the more likely results. Of course, when you roll two dice, there are 36 possible options, and your chances of getting a one result is one out of 36. Your chances of getting a six and rolling two dice and taking the higher number is 11 out of 36, almost one third. So keep that in mind as we explain the game. A lot of times in this game, you're gonna have to roll a dice. You'll roll two and you'll take the higher. There's some items or abilities that allow you to roll just one dice instead of two. And this is always an advantage because it gives you a better chance of rolling the lower numbers. All right, let's get into the meat of this game. To start off on every turn, you're going to have to do what's called recording your actions. The phase of this game technically is called Birdsong. In the game Realm Speak, you're going to click on the tab that has sort of what looks like the picture of the book and the pencil writing to allow you to record your actions. And you should see a little line that says, Awaiting Actions. 
you're going to see a lot of tabs there above that section with all the possible actions. There's hide, move, search, rest, alert, spell, trade, and hire. You'll see a little box with an icon representing each of those. You really only need to worry about three of those to start the game. And those are hide, move, and search. Let's talk about how to do those. So first of all, let me remind you that each day or each turn, you're going to have four actions that you can do. And these are the ones you're mostly going to do, moving, hiding, and searching. For example, for your first turn, you could just move four spaces, and that might be your turn. Move, 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 and that's your whole first day. But more likely, you might do something like move, move, hide, search, and that would be your turn. Let's look at some specifics about moving, hiding, and searching. First of all, moving. If you're using the game RealmSpeak, all you have to do to record a move action is to click on the clearing where you want to go. To start with, you're going to have to see where you're at. You are a circle, and you have your Berserker chit. It's sort of a half-heart symbol. But you're going to be with the inn, because that's where the Berserker always starts. So look for, the, look for a stack with a bunch of chits on it, and you should see sort of a circle outline. If you put your cursor over the inn, you're going to see all the chits that are there. There's a bunch of rogues. Don't worry about them. Just ignore them for now. And you'll see your circle chit. And you're going to want to move, and you're going to probably move towards those caves and mountains. So you're going to click on the clearings that you want to go to. You could go four spaces if you wanted to use your whole turn. If you were doing this old school and playing the game face-to-face, -face, again, you'd have a personal history pad. And you'd record the letter M, and then you'd write down what clearing you want to go to. For example, if you were in the Awful Valley, there are a bunch of clearings. You might write MAV1, meaning Move Awful Valley 1. And so you're going to record your moves like that. The caves and mountains are more difficult to move in, so you get some penalties for moving in those areas. If you spend any part of your turn in caves, either you start or finish in a cave, instead of the normal four actions in a day, you're only going to get two actions for that day. It's hard to see down in those caves. If you want to move into a mountain clearing, now there are mountain hexes, but there's only a couple mountain clearings in those mountain hexes. Any little clearing that is surrounded by gray rocks, that's a mountain. And so whenever you move into a mountain clearing, you have to, what's called, climb that mountain. So instead of the normal one action to move to that section, it's going to take two actions every time you want to move to a mountain clearing. That's moving. Let's talk about hiding. At the end of a turn, especially if you move into a cave or a, a mountain hex, you're probably going to want to hide at the end of the turn. The reason you'll want to hide is because if a monster happens to show up, you will be able to avoid combat. A lot of the monsters in this game are very deadly, especially when you're just playing by yourself. You're going to want to make sure that it's a battle that you can fight. So if you end the turn into a dangerous hex like a cave or a mountain, usually it's a good idea to hide at the end of the turn. How you hide is if, if you're playing the game Realm Speak, you just click on the hide icon. If you're playing an old school, you would write a letter H. When it's resolved, you're going to roll dice using the dice roll mechanic. And as long as you don't roll a 6 as your result, you successfully hide. Again, you have about a 1 in 3 chance of getting a 6. If you're really worried about your success in hiding, you can take the hide action multiple times. Like I could use move, move, hide, hide. And that way I'd get two chances to hide so I'm hidden for the end of the round. 
Next is searching. For a action, you can click on the search button, which is that shovel, or you would write the letter S if you're playing face-to-face. -face. When you use the search action, you could be doing any number of things. You might be looking for hidden paths or passages or treasure locations or trying to loot the treasure locations. You don't have to pick what you're going to look for until we get to the resolution of that. For right now, you're just going to write a search or you're going to write an S. When it gets to be your turn, you can decide what you want to search for. So when you're going to resolve the search, there's three different tables depending on what you're looking for. You can say you're either going to peer, locate, or loot, and a little dialog box will come up, and it will tell you what each of those can find. The peering one is good for finding hidden paths. The locate one is good for finding treasure locations or secret passages, and looting is good once you've discovered a treasure location. So let's look at peering. Peering is good for hidden paths. Hidden paths are those dark brown trails connecting some of the clearings. And you can't use those unless you find them. In order to find them, you need to get a three result, uh, having done the search and, and getting a three. The odds of that aren't very good. So a lot of times it's better just to go around unless you really think you're going to use that hidden path quite a bit. Locate can be used to find secret passages. Secret passages are like hidden paths, but they're in caves. They're sort of that those black paths with rocks in between them. And again, you can't use those unless you discover them. They're kind of hard to find and normally not worth bothering about. But the main thing you're going to want to use search for is for locating treasure chits and then looting them. Once you find one of those orange chits, like say you find the horde, that horde comes up, and you're going to have to move to where that clearing is and use the search action. Because even though you know the horde is there, you don't actually know it's there. So you're going to need to search until you find it. To find that horde, you're going to have to get a result of a 4 or a 1. And this can be sort of the annoying part, as this could take a few actions in order to find that chit, but that's just part of the game. So you're going to have to keep searching until you find that horde. Once you have located the horde, it will be listed on your discoveries, or you would write that down. And now you know where that is for the rest of the game, and you can loot it. In order to see what treasures are in which locations, you're going to want to look at that setup card again where the monsters are. If you go and look at sort of more the right side of that setup card, you're going to see the eight different treasure locations. On top is the monster who guards that, who might show up. But underneath is stacked all the delicious treasures. Mmm. If you click on that pile, you're going to see everything that's in that stack. Normally there's some large treasures on top, and then there's some small treasures. Some of those locations have spells, which we don't care about right now. For example, the Horde has nine treasures. It has five large treasures and then four small treasures underneath. When you do the loot action, you're going to roll two dice, and you're going to take the higher result, of course. Say you got a three and a five, your result would be a five. You would count down from the top of the stack, one, two, three, four, five, and you'll get the fifth treasure. And the way this mechanic works is kind of neat, because since the large treasures are on top, they are harder to find. And as you continue to loot and that stack disappears, it gets harder and harder to find treasure. Once there is less than six, say for example there are only four treasures left, if I roll a three and a five, my result is a five. Since there's only four treasures left, I'm just out of luck and I did not succeed. So the less treasures there are in a stack, the lower your chances are of being successful in finding something. 
When you find something, it will go in your inventory, and sometimes you'll want to activate it, and you'll need to click on it to activate it. All right, so those are the three main actions you're going to want to record, moving, hiding, and searching. Remember, with your goals being heading to those mountains and caves and trying to find a treasure location to loot. So you're going to write down, maybe for example, you'd write move, 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 hide for your first turn. And then you click on the send button when you're playing Realm Speak. The next thing that happens is the monster roll happens. And you can see that right after your actions, it will tell you what the monster roll is. You can look at the setup card and see what monsters are going to be coming out on the board. Then if you had multiple players, you would randomly choose which player was going first and which was going second. And then the players are going to resolve their actions. And this is called the daylight phase, technically, in the game. The first thing that happens on turn is if you were hidden at the start of the turn, you would become unhidden. And whether you are hidden or not is represented by flipping your counter over. It has sort of a beige side, which means you're unhidden, and it has a green side, which means you're hidden, which is important to see if monsters can attack you when they show up or not. So then you're just going to resolve your actions. If you're playing Realm Speak, you're just going to click to do each of your actions. If you happen to record an action that is not possible, then it's just going to be canceled. There's a few things that can cause that to happen. If there's a monster in your way, a monster will block all of your future actions unless you are hidden. If you try to move across a path, like a hidden path that you haven't found yet, that's going to get blocked. You might, for example, try to search and then move across that hidden path. Well, if you fail on your search, then your movement across the hidden path will be canceled. In between each of these actions, you can activate treasures or deactivate weapons or abandon items if you want. Be aware you can only use like one weapon or one item of the same type. Like there's some different boots you could find in the game. You can only wear one type of boots. So this is the time in between those actions you'd activate, deactivate, or abandon some of your items. But activating is different than alerting. Later in combat, we'll talk about alerting weapons. Your weapons have a red side on the other side, and in some ways those get flipped over to make your weapons more effective. Activating is only used for items, putting them so that they're ready to go. You're not alerting or flipping them over. We'll talk more about that later. So after you're done moving, whatever chits are in that tile are going to flip up. There's going to be a yellow warning chit, and then there might be a sight or a sound chit, and those will flip over. And this is the point where the game will check to see if any monsters appear. If a monster is summoned from one of those yellow chits, it's going to show up right in your tile and attack you unless you're hidden. If a monster appears from the sight or the sound chit, the monster is going to show up into that clearing where that chit stays. And if you're in that clearing, he's going to fight you, unless, of course, you're hidden. If no monster shows up to kill you, well, then you're good to go. That turn is pretty much over. You're going to record four more actions for the next turn, and the game will continue in that way. So let's think about how your few first turns might work. For the first day, you start by having to plan your actions. Maybe you want to head to a mountain clearing. So you move into one regular clearing, and then you want to move into a mountain clearing. That takes two move actions to do that. You click on that mountain and it records two actions for you. And then for your fourth and final action, you're going to hide so that if monsters show up, you don't have to fight them. So your sheet would look like move, 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 hide. You've recorded your actions. Now you would click send in the game. Or if you're playing it for real, you'd actually just say you're done. Roll one die for the monster roll. The monster roll is a three. 
So you're going to put the chit on the on the three line on the setup card, and all the monsters in that row are active and ready to show up. So first of all, you resolve your action. You'd move, move, and then you'd roll the two dice to see if you successfully hid. You didn't get a six, so you successfully hid. You turn your chit side to the green. Then you flip over the chits in that mountain tile that you just ended up in. The warning chit is a dank M chit, and an orange sight chit appears. Hooray! It's horde six. So that's placed in the number six clearing in that tile. So now we check and see if that monster roll is affected by either of those chits. We look on the setup card, and we see that if you would have rolled a 1, then we would have summoned the dragon to the dragon horde. And if you would have rolled a 5, that's where the dank M chit is, that would have summoned a spider that would have showed up in your clearing. But we didn't roll a 5, we rolled a 3, so no monsters are going to appear this turn. You are ready for day 2. You unflip, you're unhidden again to start the next turn, and you have to plan your next actions. Well, you decide to bravely charge into that dragon horde. So you do another double move. You have to move into the mountain clearing where that dragon horde is. Double move. And then we're going to record search, search to try to see if we can discover that horde shit. So we write those down. We click send and we begin the next turn. Uh Uh-oh, the monster roll was a one. The dragon is going to show up. But we're going to have to follow through on our plans anyway. So now you resolve the actions, you move to where the horde is, you search, the box shows up, what do you want to do? Peer, locate, or loot. So you choose locate, you roll a three and a four. Success! You find the horde chit. So now you can loot the horde. Your next action was a search action, you choose loot, you rolled a two and a five, you get the fifth treasure down in the stack, and that goes into your inventory. Now is the time for dragons to appear. So the dragon shows up in your chit, and it's time for combat. That gives you a sample of what the first couple turns might look like. So you discovered a treasure. Let's talk about treasure cards. Look at the treasure in your inventory. The treasures generally have abilities. Uh, Sometimes they're on the bottom and sometimes they don't really make sense. So you you probably, this is where having those tables from the third edition will be helpful. You can look on that PDF, look in the end for the list of treasures and it'll explain a little bit more specifically what your treasure does. Some of them on the bottom will tell you that they give you fame or notoriety, which is good as long as you own those. Those will give you bonuses or sometimes penalties for fame and notoriety for owning those treasures. Also, in the lower right corner is a number in bold. That's the value of the treasure, and that's how much you can sell them for at a dwelling. And since we're a berserker and we don't care about magic, anything that's like a spell item, like a spell book or something like that, you're probably just going to sell. If the treasure has a red dot on it, that means it is a great treasure. Remember, we have to try to find at least one great treasure. That's important for our victory point score. Don't get confused large treasures and great treasures. Just because something is a large treasure doesn't mean it is a great treasure. It is only a great treasure if it has a red dot on it. Again, you want to see where those treasures are. Look at the setup card and click on the different locations and you can see which locations have the most treasure. Again, we don't care if locations have spells right now. We're just looking for treasures. So the horde and the lair and the pool and the cairns and the vault are all locations that we want to find because they have a whole ton of treasure. All right, so you've been listening for quite a while. Why don't you go ahead and try it? Try to play a few turns and try to do your best to play a few turns without ending up having to fight anyone. So to start with, choose your first four actions. For your first few moves, you're trying to get to a mountain or a cave tile. So you're just going to click on those locations you want to go to. 
If you get to one of those dangerous tiles, you're probably going to want to end that turn with an action to hide. So your first goal is to try find one of those orange sight chits without having to fight anyone. After you've chosen four actions, click send, and then click play next to resolve each action and see its results. At the end of your fourth action, the combat window always shows up. Look at the top of that window to see if a monster has shown up based on the monster roll to come and try to kill you. Now hopefully you're hidden and if you're hidden successfully you can just click end and ignore that monster. Though you'll have to hide at the beginning of next turn to be able to move away from him. But hopefully there aren't any monsters there and if there aren't you can just click end and you're done. The combat window always shows up to allow you to activate items if you want to at the end of your turn. So continue with your next turns. Keep moving and hiding and searching till you find an orange chit. When an orange chit shows up in a clearing, you need to go to that clearing and keep using the search action to locate until you find it and then try to loot that treasure location. Okay, go ahead, give it a shot. Inevitably, at some point, you're going to end up in a combat. When you see a monsters or multiple monsters at the top of that uh, combat window, and we'll talk about that next. But for now, just go explore and try to avoid monsters and find one of those sight chits. I'll see you in a little bit. So, you're back. You ended up in a battle. Well, I told you not to do that. What are you going to do? Can't be avoided. Plus, you want to kill some monsters anyway so that you get some fame and notoriety points, which is one of the goals of the game. So it's time for combat. You may be faced with that monster and he's going to fight you, and you might not even realize how this happened. Let's talk about when combat occurs. When can you end up with a monster who's going to fight you? If you end your turn in a tile with a yellow warning chit that summons a monster, and most of them have yellow warning chits that summon a monster, especially in the mountains and the caves, you have a 1 in 6 chance of the monster roll being a roll that will summon one of those monsters. He's going to show up in your clearing, whether you're hidden or not. And if you are unhidden, he is going to attack you. Next, you could be on an orange and red chit. And remember, the orange and red chits are in specific clearings. And if you end up in the clearing with the orange and red chit, and you end up with a prowling monster because you got unlucky because the dice roll ended up on that line where the orange and red chits are triggered, the monster is going to show up and fight you if you're unhidden. Or maybe the monster had already gotten on the board from a previous turn, and then it was prowling again, and you were on that tile, then the monster is going to walk over to where you are and fight you. If you try to move through a clearing where there's a monster and you're unhidden, the monster is going to block you, canceling all the rest of your actions that turn and fight you at the end of the turn. You might, for example, end up in a clearing with a monster, try to hide and try to move away. If you fail that first hide roll and you're in a clearing with a monster, that monster is going to block you and fight you. And finally, most bravely of all, if you see a monster there and you want to try to get some fame and notoriety and you get all ready to fight and you just walk into that clearing unhidden and that monster will fight you. First, we got to look at some statistics now that we're going to get into battle. So let's talk about those statistics. First of all, in Magic Realm, there are five levels of strength that are used for multiple things, including how much weight you can carry, how hard it is to kill you, and what you are able to kill. Those five levels of strength are N, which is negligible, L, which stands for light, M, which stands for medium, H, which stands for heavy, and T, which stands for tremendous. First of all, that's used for what you can carry. 
Look at your move chits. You're going to move chits with different letters on them. H's and T's. Some of the characters have other ones like L's and M's. In order to move around the board at all, you need to have at least one chit that's active that's equal to your heaviest item. Your heaviest item is the axe. It has an H on it. So luckily all your move chits are at least H, so you don't have to worry about that. Plus, you can only use the move chits in combat that are equal to or greater than your heaviest item. So if you had M move chits, which you don't, you couldn't use those in combat. The Berserker doesn't really have to worry about this. Some of the other characters have to worry more. Next, vulnerability. How easy you are to kill. Look at your character card by clicking the View Character Card button. It will say your vulnerability level. For the Berserker, you have an H heavy which means it takes a heavy hit to kill you. Medium and light hits will simply wound you. Now let's talk about harm strength. This is going to be on your fight chits, you'll have letters, and on your weapon, you'll have a letter. And this represents what you can kill. Each turn, in order to fight, you're going to have to play a fight chit. And you're also going to be using your weapon. Your weapon is your great axe. The important thing is the letter on your great axe. Great axe has an H and a star. That means that the axe can kill heavy and smaller monsters. The monsters come in sizes medium, heavy, and tremendous, so you're going to be able to kill medium and heavy monsters. Plus, the axe has that star. That star is called a sharpness star. A sharpness star lets you hit one level higher, and the level higher is tremendous. So you can kill all of the monsters in the game, tremendous, heavy, and medium. Hooray! Alright, I lied. Because some of the monsters are armored. If a monster is armored, armor negates one sharpness star. So what you need to know is with the Berserker, you can kill all the monsters in the game with one hit, except the armored tremendous monsters. But wait, there's still a way to do that. There are letters on the fight chits. You might be thinking, why do these letters matter? Well, you have to use a fight chit letter with a strength equal to or higher than the weight of your axe. So your axe is an H, so you have to use at least an H. Not a problem. We only have H's and T's. If you use an H, then that works just fine. But if you use a T, then that signifies that you are overswinging your attack, which is a good thing. Because by overswinging, by playing that T chit, you up your attack strength one level to tremendous. Now you can kill those pesky, armored tremendous monsters like dragons. So using a tremendous fight chit, you can kill any monster in the game with the Berserker. Feel fortunate. A lot of the other characters aren't this strong. Alright, let's look at monsters and look at how to read their tiles. There's a lot of information on that tile, but there's three very important things that you need to know. How vulnerable the monster is, the attack speed of the monster, and the move speed. Monsters also are two-sided. If you look at the setup chart, if you left-click on the monster, you can see one side of the monster. If you right-click, you can see the back side. The reason they're two-sided is because those monsters are tricky. Every turn, they have a random chance of flipping over, changing their statistics on that round, and messing with your plans. Let's look at a sample monster. Click on the setup card. Look at the heavy flying dragon. They are the monster in the upper left-hand corner. And just as a point of reference, this box has two heavy flying dragons in it. So if that chit was to summon monsters, you'd be faced with both flying dragons at the same time. Also, for example, the wolves. That box has six wolves in it. So if you're unlucky enough to get that box, you're going to be faced with six wolves at the same time. 
All right, back to the flying dragons. Hopefully you're looking at the redesigned chits because you're on realm speak and you use that option to look at the redesigned chits. If you're going old school and you have the game, uh, the chits are not going to quite have all of that information on them. I'll explain what's different about them as we go through. First of all, the vulnerability. How hard the monster is to kill. For the Berserker, we don't really care about this as much because we can pretty much kill anything. But for some of the weaker characters, this is very important. In the upper right corner, you'll see a letter, either H or T or M. The flying dragons are heavy, which is signified by the letter H. Also, that letter is in a circle. This circle is gray because dragons are armored. There are certain monsters, the trolls and the snakes, and the dragons are armored. All the other ones are in a yellow circle, meaning they don't have armor. If you're looking at the regular chits, they do not have the vulnerability on them. They were determined by the size of the chit, which was kind of annoying, and they also didn't write down whether or not they had armor. Next, how the monster attacks. If you look in the lower left corner for the heavy flying dragon, its attack is an H4. That's the damage and the speed of the attack. You're going to have to play a move chit with speed equal or lower to that number, that 4, to avoid taking an automatic hit. And the hit is level H, which could kill you. So you're going to need to use at least that move 4 chit to dodge this guy. In the lower right part of the chit, is the move speed and this is in a blue octagon and it has the number four it's pretty fast you need a number lower than this number if you want to run away from this guy with a move chit or if you're fighting it you can get an automatic hit if you have a fight chit lower than four we don't fight that fast we're berserkers we take our time all of our fight chits have a fight four or higher so we're not going to get an automatic hit all right so we're ready to fight how do we do that? Fighting takes place in several steps. If you're playing the actual face-to-face -face game, your personal history pad flips over and that becomes a little fighting board. If you're playing it on RealmSpeak, that little fighting board just sort of shows up in the window. And in the upper left corner of that window, it has all the steps that you go through in a fight. I'm only going to go through the most important of those steps. A lot of those are ignored, especially in the circumstances we're dealing with. So it's time to fight. The first step is luring. In a solo game, this isn't used very often. What luring does is if you are hidden and the monster shows up in your tile and you want to fight him anyway, you can use the luring to make the monster fight you. Be aware that if there's three monsters, you can't just lure one of them and fight them. If you lure, you become unhidden and all the monsters try to clobber you. Most of the time, this luring step can just be ignored. You just hit N because they're going to fight and kill you anyways. You don't need to lure them. If you're playing with two players and you're both in the same clearing, then you could sort of lure and decide who got to fight who is the main function of this step. Next, it's the encounter step. Before we get to the actual fighting, there's a few things that you could do. You could run away. You have to have a move chit faster than the speed of the monster. As the Berserker, we don't have really have a really fast move chit. Our fastest move chit, lower numbers are faster, is 4. And most monsters in the game at least have a speed of 4. So this isn't really an option for us. Next, we could alert our weapon, means get your weapon ready. To do that, you need to have a move chit fast enough. It means faster than the monster once again. Once again, your Berserker there is kind of slow. There's a couple monsters you can get away with this with. I believe the Giants have a move of 5. 
so that you can alert your weapon, means get it ready to go, flip it over, so that it's faster than it normally is. Next, before battle starts, you can activate, deactivate, or abandon, that means leave in the clearing, any items. This means, you know, if you want to put your armor on or get one of your treasure items, it helps you with combat activated so that you can use it. This is the time to do that. Most of the time in this encounter step, if you're not faster than the monster, you're not really going to do anything. So just hit next so we're ready to get to the meat of the combat. Next, you have to choose a target. If there's two or three monsters there, you have to pick one. Usually it doesn't matter which because they're all the same. So you just click on the monster, pick one that you want to try to kill. Good, moving on. Next, we have to choose a position for the monster. There are three boxes there in a diagonal row. There's one in the upper left, there's a box in the center, and there's a box in the lower right. You have to place all the attackers into one of these boxes. So if there's just one, you just pick one of the boxes for them to go in. If there's more than one, you have to distribute them equally. So say there were three monsters, you'd have to put one monster in each box. You can't put them all in the same box. How do you decide which one to put it in? Don't worry about it. Because after you choose where to fight, we're going to roll some dice and they'll have a random chance of landing in any of the three boxes. So where you put them initially just does not matter. In fact, in RealmSpeak, there is a auto position feature. You just click on that auto position and it'll just choose a box for you. You don't have to worry about it. Now to fight, you're going to have to choose which chits to use. You're going to use a fight chit to try to hit the monster and a move chit to try to get out of the way of the monster's attack. There are two ways to hit the monster with your fight chit. Either you're faster than the monster and you get an automatic hit, or you just happen to hit him in the right spot on the one out of three chance that the dice roll places that monster in the spot that you were aiming. So first of all, you should try to go for the automatic hit if you can. To do that, you're looking for your attack to be faster than the monster's move speed. So look at your fight chits. If you have a number less than the monster's move speed, which is in the blue octagon there, you're gonna be able to get an automatic hit Unless, of course, that darn monster flips over. To check your fight speed, it's going to be the speed of the action chit. Unless you have a weapon. Usually an alerted weapon has a speed on it. So if your weapon is alerted, that's the speed you're going to use. Your great axe, when it's alerted, has a speed of 4, which is excellent. But usually you're going to start off your battles unalerted on the white side up. So if your axe is unalerted, which it will start the battle as, in order to get an automatic hit, you're going to have to use a fight chit with a number lower than the monster's move. Now we're going to have to make sure we're going to do enough damage to kill it. Because we're a big manly berserker, this is probably not going to be a problem. We can kill just about anything. But if we're facing a tremendous armored monster, we're going to need to overswing with our fight. That means use a fight chit with a letter T on it. If not, we don't have to worry about the letter on the chit. Next, choose a position for where that fight chit is going to go. You're either going to put that fight chit on the top, the center, or on the bottom, hoping that the monster lands in the row that you are swinging at. The last thing we need to talk about with these fight chits and the move chits is they have asterisks on them. The asterisks are not meant to be confused with the stars. The asterisks tell you how much effort a chit takes to use. The better chits have more effort asterisks on it. Asterisks is a hard word to say. I'm utilizing effort asterisks now just to pronounce the word asterisks, though I was proud of that one bit where I was able to talk at length about hordes and chits without cracking a single joke or making one slip up. My enunciation skills are top-notch today. Must have been all those pre-recording warm-ups I did here in the How to Play studios before I began. 
Anyways, back to effort asterisks. Um, you can only play two of these effort asterisks on a turn, and if you use them, your chits are going to get tired and you can't use them again. So keep in mind, between your fight and your move, you can only use a total of two asterisks. So you could use a two asterisk fight chit, but then you would have to use a zero asterisk move chit, and so on. Be aware of the effort asterisks. So you've chosen a fight chit. You put it in one of those rows, top, center, or bottom. Now it's time to choose a move chit to try to avoid being hit. On your move chit, the letter is there just to make sure that you're using a move chit of a letter equal to the equipment that you're carrying. With the Berserker, this is usually not an issue. Don't worry about it. What you're worried about with the move chit is the number. You need to play a move chit that is equal to or lower than the monster's attack speed. Like that flying dragon hits at h4. So he's hitting at a speed of 4. In order for you to have a chance not to get hit, you're going to need to play a move chit 4 or less. There's some monsters that attack at a 3 or a 2, so they're going to hit you automatically no matter what. Though you can play a move chit and hope that that monster flips over and attacks slower. You're going to play that move chit on the left column, in the center column, or in the right column. There's three spots there for it on the bottom of the combat card there. The idea is, is you want to play them so that you are not in the column that the monster shows up in. You don't know where he's going to be. It's going to be a random one in three chance. So you don't have to stress too much about which of those areas to put it in. But there's a bit of strategy here. You can play the move chit behind your armor, like your helmet there. And that way, if he does hit you, you're protected. Or you can play it so it matches where your attack is. For example, say the monster ends up in the upper left box. We would want your fight chit in the upper row and your move chit in the left column. Because that way, even though the monster is going to hit you, you're going to get to hit it. And you'll probably hit it first, so you will kill it before it hits you. So that's usually a good strategy, is to have your fight chit lined up with the move chit. So you will kill it before it kills you. Now, of course, if there's two monsters there, well, then you've got problems. Again, with the move chits, you need to keep in mind the effort asterisks. Between the fight and the move chit, you only use a total of two. So you might use one and one, or two and zero, or zero and two. And you don't have to use your full two asterisks. In fact, in some cases, it's a good idea not to. So you've set up your attack and your attempt to move. How does this combat all go down? Well, let's talk about the order it's going to happen in. In the first round of combat, we use weapon length to determine who attacks first. Unfortunately, this weapon length stat is not on the chits. So in face-to-face -face play, you have to look it up on this table, and it's sort of annoying. In realm speak, if you look at the details of your inventory, you'll be able to find your weapon length. Just know that your axe has a weapon length of 5. The monster's weapon length is on these redesigned chits. The weapon length is designated on the remodeled chits by the number in parentheses at the bottom of the tile. You'll see most of them there have a weapon length of zero, though there are a few that have special weapons. So in many cases, you're going to get the first chance to hit. If there is a second round, and for further rounds, the attacks go in order of attack speed. So you're going to look on your weapons or on your fight chit and on the monster's attack speed in the lower left corner. So whoever has the lowest number will get to go first. If there's a tie, the ties are broken by that weapon length stat again. The order of combat is very important because, of course, you could kill a monster before it gets to attack you, or vice versa. But before we get to the swinging and the killing, we gotta have some randomization. 
it wouldn't be very fun if you knew where that monster was going to end up. So the monster has to make some dice rolls. First of all, you'll roll one die to see what happens to the monsters in the three boxes. There's a one-third chance of the monsters going to any of the three boxes. And this is all based on the table, with the numbers one through six. Don't roll two dice on this roll. Then for each monster, you're going to roll two dice. And it has a random chance to flip over in what is called change tactics. If the roll is a six, and again that's a 11 out of 36 chance, the monster will flip and change stats before it fights. And this can be very annoying if you weren't planning on this. This only happens for medium and heavy monsters. Tremendous monsters have a special flip condition, which we'll talk about in a bit. Okay, so now, hit or miss. We resolve those attacks in that order. First round, weapon length. Second round and further, you use attack speed. For the first attack, you check to see if it undercuts, meaning is it quicker than the monster, and then you check to see if they intercept. So, undercut. Is the attack speed quicker than the target's move speed? If it is, it's a hit. If it isn't, they have to intercept to hit the target. They have a one-third chance. For a hero to hit, they have to have that fight chit in the same row as the monster. For the monster to hit, the monster needs to be in the same column where you have placed the move chit. How do you kill a monster? Well, if the hero hits the monster, he either kills it or he doesn't. There's no wounding or hit points for monsters. You check the attack strength, and if it's equal to or higher than the vulnerability of the monster, then the monster is dead, and the monster's future attack that round would be canceled. Keep in mind, if you overswing with a fight chit, then that increases the attack strength by one. If the weapon has a sharpness star, that ups the attack strength by one. And if you're facing an armored monster, like a dragon or a troll, then that cancels a sharpness star. How does the monster hurt the hero? Well, if the monster hits the hero, either because he's faster than you, or because he ends up in the same column, you check the attack strength of the hit. If it equals or exceeds that hero's vulnerability, you are dead. For example, the Berserker has heavy vulnerability, so if he gets a heavy hit or a tremendous hit, you are dead. You gotta start over from the end and keep going from there. If the attack is less than the vulnerability, then they're gonna wound an action counter for each hit. What a wound is, is you take one of your counters and you move it over to an inactive side, and in, in the real game, you would flip it over. In Realm Speak, it'll just turn that counter red, meaning you can't use that counter anymore. If a monster's attack is in the same column as your armor to protect you, for example, you have that helmet, and if the monster hits you in that column, if it's a light wound, it has no effect. If it's a medium or higher attack, even a tremendous attack, you'll take a wound, but you won't die. Hooray for armor! The armor is going to get damaged if the hit strength equals the armor weight. And armor is destroyed if the strength exceeds the armor weight. So you've got that helmet. If the helmet gets a medium hit, it's going to be damaged. And if it gets damaged again, it's going to blow up. If the helmet gets a heavy or a tremendous hit, it's going to be destroyed. But luckily, it'll have saved your life. So you resolve each hit like that in combat order. Like for the first round, you will probably get to hit first. You'll check to see if you hit. If you kill the monster, then combat would be over. If not, the monster would try to hit you, and then that would be the end of the round, assuming we had one-on-one -on -one combat. If you're faced in a situation with six goblins and one of you, 
you're going to get your one attack, but those six goblins are going to get six hits at you. It gets to be sort of an ugly situation quickly. Sometimes with realm speak, it can be sort of hard to track what happens because everything moves so fast. Let me recommend that you click on the round summary button after each round of combat, and that way you can see they'll use the terms intercept and undercut, and you can follow each attack and make sure that you are making sense of what is going on in the combat round. If you want more specific details about what is going on, click on the game log dialog box, and that's available from the view option in RealmSpeak. So you figured out what happened in that combat round? We now need to sort of clean up the end of that combat round. After each monster has attacked, we have some steps that we have to do to finish up the round. First of all, those tremendous monsters. If a tremendous monster hit, it flips over to a red side. You can no longer run away from this monster. Thematically, the monster has picked you up and is about to eat you or tear you in half. And the next round, you'll play the next round, and if it hits you again, you're automatically dead. This is usually bad. The next thing that happens at the end of the round is weapons may flip over. If you scored a hit and your weapon is alert, it turns to unalert. If you missed and your weapon was unalert, it becomes alert, ready to use for next round. If you missed and your weapon was alert, nothing's going to happen to the weapon. Finally, we have the fatigue step. This is where those effort asterisks come into play. If you used your full two effort asterisks, you have to fatigue one chit. What that means is you move a chit from being active to fatigued. In the face-to-face -face game, you move a chit from the left side of your nameplate to the right side, but keep it face up. In the game Realm Speak, your chits simply turns yellow, and meaning it's no longer active and you can't use it. Then you have wounds. For each hit you receive that didn't kill you, you're going to have to wound one chit. Like we said before, this is taking one of your chits and it's becoming red, meaning you can no longer use it. In the face-to-face -face game, you would take your chit, move it to the right side of your nameplate there, and flip it over showing that it's wounded. If you have no chits left to wound, guess what? You're dead. Game over. If you're not dead, or all the monsters aren't dead, we start a new combat round, going through that same process again. The basic steps again to review are, we'll have an encounter step, where you could try to alert your weapon or run away if you have a fast enough move chit. Then you need to assign yourself a target of one of those monsters. Choose a box for each monster, and choose a move and a fight chit. Then we randomize to see which spot the monsters end up in, and roll dice for each medium and heavy monster to see if they flip over. Then we resolve the hits in combat order. Then we clean up the round. Tremendous monsters, if they hit, would flip over. Weapons alert or unalert, based on whether you hit or missed. And you would have to fatigue chits if you use two effort asterisks, or you'll have to wound chits if you got hit. And you're gonna repeat this until one side is dead, or runs away. Let's talk about running away. If you successfully run away because you had a move chit faster than the monster's move, you run to an adjacent path between two clearings. If you just entered that clearing that turn, you have to run back the way you came. So next turn, you're going to start actually on a path, but you're required to make your first action next turn to be to a move to an adjacent clearing. That's the only time you can sit on those paths. What happens if you won? If you defeated a monster, if you defeated a monster, you're going to get some fame and or some notoriety for defeating that monster. That is listed on those redesigned chits. If you don't have the redesigned chits, guess what? You got to look them up in a table. If you defeat multiple monsters in the same battle, you get bonuses for that. 
The second monster that you killed in the same battle gives you double the normal reward. The third monster gives you triple the normal reward, and so on. So if you manage to defeat six goblins at once, you're going to get quite a bit of points for doing that, but it's a pretty risky proposition. If combat is resolved, or if there is no combat that turn, that's it. That's the end of that day. All weapons that were alerted become unalerted. You move the day counter, and you do it all over again. You're going to record up to four actions, then you're going to roll that monster die, you're going to resolve the actions, see if monsters come to fight you and have combat if necessary, and repeat that again, doing that all 28 times. You're going to keep working to try to meet your goals of great treasures. Great treasures have that red dot, trying to get fame and notoriety from killing monsters, and trying to get gold. Be aware that at the beginning of each 7th day, the 7th day, 14th day, 21st day, and 28th day, all monsters that you may have killed regenerate, and they're placed back onto the setup board, available to coming back onto the field of play once again. Those monsters just never quite go away. At the end of the 28th day, the game ends, and we score up our points. Okay, so there are three major actions that I sort of skipped over. Let's go back to those now. When you're choosing your actions, you have many options to choose from. Mainly, you're going to be moving, searching, and hiding, but there are a few other choices. We need to talk about alerting, resting, and trading. First of all, alerting. If you know you're going to be fighting, it's good to alert a weapon. Or you can also alert your berserker chip so it's ready to go. The reason you want to do that is because alert-sided weapons are usually faster than the unalerted side. For example, your great axe, if you alert that, has an attack speed of 4. And you don't have to worry about playing a really fast fight chip to get that speed. But remember, those weapons are going to unalert at the end of each turn. So only do it if you know you're going to be fighting. One of your special abilities is the Berserker Chit, and you can alert that Chit. What that allows you to do is up your vulnerability to Tremendous, so you can only die if you get a Tremendous hit. This can be a valuable thing to do, especially if you think you're going to be facing monsters that are going to do heavy hits to you. This is a special ability just for the Berserker. Next, Resting. You'll probably have to do this after you successfully survive a battle because you'll have a bunch of chits either fatigued or wounded. So you can spend an action to rest. When you spend an action to rest, you get to sort of upgrade one chit from wounded or fatigued to active. And how you do that depends on how many asterisks it has. If you want to rest a chit with no asterisk, you can move it either from wounded or fatigued all the way to active. If you want to rest a one asterisk chit, you can either move it from wounded to fatigued or from fatigued to active. It's a two-step path to get that all the way back. And if you want to uh, rest a two-asterisk chit, you sort of have to do that in steps because you move up a two-asterisk chit, you have to move down a one-asterisk chit one level. It's kind of a pain to get those two-asterisk chit back. So what does this tell you? When you have to wound chits, if at all possible, wound the chits that have no or one asterisk on them because it's easier to rest them back up. And now we can talk about the other bonus of being the Berserker. The Berserker gets an extra rest phase each day. That's not going to do anything until you face a battle. You'll feel like it's kind of worthless. But after you have a battle and you have all these wounded and fatigued chits, you can go about your business and as a fifth action, use a rest action to sort of upgrade one of those chits and get back to health. Of course, if you're in really bad shape, you could spend a turn doing five rest actions to get a lot of those chits back to where you want them. 
because remember, if you get wounded and you don't have any chits to wound, you die. Also, if you need to attack or move out of the way and you have no fight or move chits to use, you can't fight or move, which is usually a bad thing. Next, the trading action. Trading is selling or buying items, and you do this at dwellings with the natives. There are some native groups out there on the board, like the soldiers are in the house. They have some things to sell, and they'll buy your stuff. The rogues there are in the inn. They have a few things to sell, and they will buy your stuff, and so on. For one recorded trade action, you can either sell as many items as you want, or you can attempt to buy one item. So if you do the trade action, when it turns to resolve it, you decide whether you want to buy or sell. If you choose to sell, you choose all the items you want to sell, and then they'll just buy them for the base price. If you look on the inventory on details, it'll tell you the value of those buildings. There's also a table of the weapons, which tells you exactly the price of everything that it sells for. The treasures, remember, their value is in the lower right corner. Some treasures will give you a bonus fame for selling them to a particular group. For example, if you get the treasure, the Bejeweled Dwarf Vest, this gives you 10 bonus fame for selling it to the soldiers in the house. So it's a good idea to go find the house and go sell it to the soldiers. Or when you use that trade action, you can attempt to buy an item. This is a bit more tricky because you sort of have to negotiate with these natives and the price that they'll sell things for sort of depends on how they feel about you. And you can get really unlucky here. Each character has different relationship levels with all of the different people. For example, the berserker is friendly with the rogues and neutral with the soldiers. And your relationship with those natives dictates which table you use to roll on when you try to buy stuff. So say I try to buy a horse from the rogues, and the horse costs 10 money. I'm going to roll on a table. The table has results from 1 to 6. The good results are on the lower end, and the bad results are on the higher end. The table will tell you how they respond to your offer to buy that horse. The results range from giving you the item to, for free, which is very, very unlikely, to paying the base price, to paying double the base price, triple the base price, or quadruple the base price. Or you can get really unlucky, and they'll make you lose five fame points or, or five notoriety points, or you have to fight them. And usually there's like five or six of them, and they'll kill you if you fight them, so you just got to lose the points. Or if you're really unlucky, they'll just fight you. But be aware, when you try to buy something, it's very likely that they're going to end up asking double or triple the price for what it is that you want to buy, especially if you have a neutral relationship with these people. One option you have is to buy drinks for the group. And if you do that, they are one table friendlier for you. You have to pay one gold for each native. It could be three to seven gold to buy drinks for everybody. And then you get to roll on the table, and you're not guaranteed a good result that way either, but it will improve your odds. Unless it's someone you have a good relationship with, buying items is pretty tricky. And you may just want to consider focusing on selling items to them and not worry about trying to buy items. If you're thinking about buying items, I would recommend looking at what is your relationship with those natives and glancing over those tables to see what your odds are of achieving the result that you're looking for. You can see these tables from an option on RealmSpeak. If you go to View and then Tables, there's a list of all of the important tables in RealmSpeak. Look at Meeting Tables. That will show you the possible results based on your relationship. Or if you have those third edition rules, you can look at those last few pages in those rules, and that's where all those important tables are located. Also, be aware that if you end your turn in a dwelling, you have to roll on the meeting table to see if they're angry with you and want to fight you. If you're friendly with those people, you're probably all right, but if they're people that don't like you very much, then you might want to avoid ending your turn there. 
check that native relationships tab there on RealmSpeak to see which groups like you and which groups don't like you that much. Okay, so we're about to wrap up. Before we do, let's just review all of the possible actions and how you play a turn. The actions you can do on your turn are move to another clearing, attempt to hide, search, which could be searching for a various amount of things, alert a weapon or your berserker chit, rest a chit, or trade. Trade meaning either buying or selling as much as you want. And you're going to choose four of those unless you spend any of your turn in the caves, in which case you only get two actions that turn. Remember that if you want to move to a mountain clearing, that takes two actions to move to. And also remember that you get an extra rest phase as your special ability for being the berserker each turn. You may not have to use it until you get into a battle, but once you do, it's a handy thing to have. So you'll choose those four actions, do the monster roll, resolve the actions, check if there's combat, and repeat. You do that 28 times, and if you're still alive, then it's time to check your score. It's also good to note that if you do die, you can restart at whatever day it is and just continue playing at day 5 or day 8 as if you just started the game fresh. Usually when I play this on RealmSpeak, I'll either just restart the game because I don't want to lose that much time. Or if I think things are going to be particularly dangerous, I'll save the game and that will allow me to go back to that point so I don't have to keep restarting all over again. But if you make it through all 28 days, you'll be able to see how you did with your score. You can always check your score and see how you're doing by clicking on that Victory Requirements tab there during RealmSpeak and see how things are going. The scoring formula is a little bit complex. It sort of makes my head spin, but let me just give you the basics. If you meet those minimums that we set at the beginning of the game by choosing the factors of what we wanted to go for, great treasure, fame, notoriety, and gold, Remember, we chose one VP towards great treasure, two towards fame, one towards notoriety, and one towards gold. That meant, based on the factors that are in the game, we needed to find one great treasure, get 20 fame points, 20 notoriety points, and 53 gold, which was 30 gold plus our starting equipment value. And if we were able to get all of those things, we win the game. But you also get a score based on how well you did. I'm not going to get into that whole formula, but basically it's good to know that if you fail to meet one of those four requirements, you're going to get triple negative points for that category. You also are given bonus points for overachieving in certain categories and bonus negative points for underachieving in each category. And if your score is zero or more, you are considered a winner of the game. And it's possible for you to win the game if you fail in one or even two categories, but quite difficult as you'd really have to overachieve in the other categories to get a positive score. And this score would give you a victor with multiple players, or it gives you a high score to try to beat when you're playing solo. But just know that if you're able to accomplish a score of zero or more, you will have won the solo game. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. So this is a challenging game when you're playing it solo because so many of the monsters can just kill you easily and before you blink, you'll be dead. So you have to tread very carefully when you're playing this game on your own. 
If you're playing with two or three players, players are likely to stick together and face combat as a pair or as a group of three so that the combat would not be quite as deadly. But as a solo man, your first goal should be to try to find some treasure without running into a deadly fight. You should use the hide action very frequently. Head for those mountains and the caves and try to find orange sight chit to loot. The best treasure sites that you could find are the hoard, the lair, the vault, the cairns, and the pool. You need to use the search action and locate in order to find those chits and keep hiding, and then loot. Or you can loot very bravely without even hiding. It's an even better scenario if you find the treasure sites and they're not in the cave, because if they're in the cave, you're only going to get two actions per turn. So you're either going to have to loot loot or loot hide every turn, which is going to kill a lot of time really fast. Once you get some treasure, you're going to need to find some battles that hopefully you can win. Hopefully you looted a treasure item that makes you even stronger in combat. As a solo player, try to pick your battles and try to fight battles with only one or two monsters. If you're going to fight six goblins or wolves all at once, that's pretty much trouble because you can only kill one at a time and the other five are probably going to smack you. Prepare for a battle. Go into a battle alerted if possible so you have the best chance of winning. And you're going to need to get some treasures and win some battles in order to achieve that score of zero or more. One way to help you do that at the very end is to sell all your inventory. Go to a dwelling and sell as many of those treasures as you can. You may not want to do the great treasures because those give you victory points. Or if you have treasures that give you a lot of fame or notoriety points. But you want to sell all those other ones so you get enough gold to meet your gold requirement. Even sell that starting equipment so that you can make up that deficit. And with practice and a little luck, maybe, just maybe, you can make it. It isn't a game you're going to win the first time you play it. And maybe that's what makes it so addictive. It's a tough challenge trying to make it through this game all month with a positive score. And I suggest tackling it with a series of goals. That's how I did it. Goal one, try to survive for an entire week. Goal two, be able to find some treasure and loot that treasure without dying. Goal three, win a battle. Goal four, live through all 28 days, even if you have to save frequently. Goal five, Win the game with a score of zero or more, using the save feature and restarting if necessary. Goal six, win the game without saving and restarting even a single time. And if you can do that, then you can start shooting for a high score. Or maybe you're ready to try to win the game with some of the other characters. There's a lot of game here and a lot of fun to be had as you explore the magic realm. Go have fun. four footnotes and musings okay so i have some vegetables here i gotta tell you some minor but still important rules and there's a lots more that i'm forgetting but you know i can't get to everything you're just gonna have to sort of look things up as they come up but hopefully these are some of the major concerns that you might run into first of all melee versus missile weapons if you're playing as the berserker you're probably just going to keep that great axe and you're not going to have to worry about missile weapons but if you play as some of the other characters and you pick up a bow those work a little bit different. You can't overswing using a fight chit. Missile weapons, if they hit, they then roll on a table to see the amount of damage they do. Heavy, light, medium, adjusted up or down based on this table. Next, some of the monsters have two parts. Like some of the dragons have heads and the giants have clubs. 
So if you face the dragon, the dragon has two chits. He has the body chit and the head chit. And what those two chits allow him to do is be a, one monster that has two attacks. If you kill the body, you kill them both. But be aware that the dragon head and the giant club has a weapon length and may be able to kill you before you get your attack in, which makes them especially dangerous. Next, you may end up getting cursed. The imp is a creature in the game that can cast a curse on you. And you may loot a certain treasure that will give you a curse. Some of the curses, for example, are you're no longer allowed to hide or all of your fame points count as zero. What do you do about being cursed? Well, you go to the chapel, of course. If you end your turn in a chapel, all your curses are removed. Next, the power of the pit. Demons and flying demons have an attack to use this power of the pit. And it rolls a dice and looks on a table and it does terrible things. It could kill you, it could wound some of your chits and so on. You'll see as the demons come and kill you. Next, campfires. Uh, two of the forest chits are replaced with campfires that are sort of other dwellings that if you end your turn there, they might draw some natives and give you some other people to sell to or to buy from. So there's some of those native groups that start on the setup board. And if you end your turn in a dwelling, if you get that monster roll where they are prowling, those native groups may appear in the listed dwelling. So that's how those extra native groups get on the board. On row six, there's a bunch of these special visitor and campaign chits. For your first few games, just sort of ignore these. But these can show up in dwellings if you're there and a six is rolled on the monster roll. Again, these are different people to sell to and just give you different options in the game. Just don't worry about them for your first games. One thing that you'll soon find out if you explore a bit on Realmspeak is if you find certain treasure locations, the vault, the cairn, and the pool, they all have special requirements for looting them. The vault, you just have to have a tremendous chit, which as the berserker is not a problem. If you're one of those weaker characters, then a vault's kind of annoying because you can't get into it. The cairn and the pool require you to fatigue chits in order for you to get treasures from them. They both work a little bit differently, but that's the basic idea. Just a few more notes about that monster roll. When you do the monster roll, the monster roll is only going to affect tiles in which heroes are. It's not going to summon monsters to any other hexes. In the official rules of the game, this is signified by having chits in which heroes are in face up. And when you leave, you turn them face down. Of course, the annoying part of this is that you don't remember which of those chits were where if you move into different hexes and you have to like write it down in a notebook and that's no fun. So that's why we activated that persistent chits option. You also notice several of those warning chits have multiple boxes with which to summon monsters. So it's possible that if you're in a hex for the first turn, you could summon a bat and then the next turn that bat could still be there and you could summon more bats. And that's why you have those multiple boxes. They come out on the board from left to right. In the sites, the sites only have one guardian there. And he'll come out and then he'll either stay around or he'll die. Of course, if he dies, he gets regenerated beginning of each week. So those are some extra rules that may be helpful as you're exploring this game. A note about saving the game. If you do save the game and replay a game where you died, you'll soon notice that the die rolls are the same from game to game. That's because those die rolls are preloaded in a set fashion. So that has some advantages and some disadvantages. It's an advantage in that you can't cheat the game, but it's a disadvantage in that you can cheat the game. If you're looking to sort of make a hide roll, you can't just reload the game and hope for a different result. 
However, if you end up in a combat and you lose to a monster, you could memorize what that monster does and then go back and cheat the game and, and hit him in the exact spot because you know where he's going to go. You're playing this solo. You have your own conscience. You can play with that however you like. Of course, like I said, that highest goal of success in this game is being able to beat the game without doing any saving and restarting, which would avoid all that nonsense. One last note, I don't think I mentioned at all the length of the game. If you're playing this game on RealmSpeak, uh, you'll probably be dead in about 5 or 10 minutes. But seriously, once you get a little better at the game and you get to play a full game, uh, a full game would last maybe somewhere between a half hour and an hour. If you're playing this in real life, if you're starting with people who don't really know what they're doing, you have to teach them, and you're going through the combat process, you're probably looking at a, a four to six hour game experience. Ideally, you'd have people who have learned the game on RealmSpeak and then maybe get together and play face to face. I've been told with experienced players, they could get through a full game in about three hours. So, if you get through this experiment and play around with the Berserker and even get to the point where you can almost win the game, where can you take it from there? Well, there's so much more to this game that I didn't even get into. Otherwise, this would be a six-hour-long podcast instead of the two hours it will probably be. But what else is there waiting for you if you keep digging in deeper? There are horses that you can purchase. The horses have a whole other set of rules. One of the main functions of horses is you can move farther if you have certain horses. Next, you're definitely going to want to play around with some of the different characters, especially starting with those just straight-up fighting characters, because each character has different strategies you have to apply. Two I might suggest playing around with are the Black Knight and the Dwarf. Black Knight is interesting because you get armor, you're a little bit more protected, but you don't have as good of a weapon. You only have a mace, so you can't kill some of the largest creatures. And so you have to figure out how you're going to deal with that weakness. Even though you're more adept at maybe fighting multiple creatures, the biggest of monsters really give you problems. Then you have the Dwarf. Dwarf is a great fighter, just like the Berserker, but he has a big hindrance in that he always only gets two actions. Short legs, of course. So you have to deal with that. One of the ways in which you do that is to go find the caves. He gets a benefit in the caves, and everyone else only gets two actions in the caves anyways. So you sort of have to take advantage of that cave strength and his toughness. And he comes with this really cool duck chit. So he's a fun one to play around with. Then once you get even more comfortable with the game, you may want to start digging into the magic rules and think about looking at how that magic system works. It involves using magic chits, and you have to use one magic chit sort of as the source of magic and another magic chit as the action to cast the spell. And there's eight different kinds of spells, and each of the different characters is adept at maybe two or three of those different spell categories. And so you, you get to know some of those spells, and you go on the lookout to try to get more of those spells. It, it really is quite a different game than just roaming around trying to swat things as the Berserker. Then you can look into hiring natives. Once you get enough money in the mid-game, you could go and try to hire a native, and then you'd sort of have a buddy to help you go fight monsters. There's a lot of rules involved with uh, dealing with those higher natives. And then you may want to look at playing this game with two or three players. The great thing about this game is you could either play it cooperatively or competitively or a little bit of each. You could both try to stick together so that when you fight combat, it's a little bit easier on both of you. Or you can play very competitively. In fact, you can even block each other and decide to attack each other. But again, this adds more complexity. And when you get through that, there's even more optional rules. Just layers and layers have been added. 
some by the designer himself, and some by the Magic Realm community. There are different sets of monsters that, that have been added. There are extra spells that have been added. There's rules for weather. There's those campaign chits I talked about. You can play multiple months. You can play sort of a campaign mode where you start as a weaker version of your character and have to build yourself up. There's so much here to be dug into if you want to keep exploring deeper and deeper. I hope that this introduction has spurred you to give this a try and that you really enjoy all of these things that Magic Realm has to offer. I just want to end with some acknowledgments and references for further reading if you want to get more into this game. I want to say a big thank you to the community of players who have loved this game so much that have kept it going and continued to build more resources for the game to allow for the game to continue to thrive and grow even though it's 32 years old. And some of the some of these people are the people that have created all of these great resources. We have the new updated rules. The rules that I used were the 3.1 rules by Teresa Mickelson and Stephen McKnight. We have another version of those rules with the acronym MRIPE, which stands for Magic Realm in Plain English, which is an attempt to simplify those rules, but it's still over 100 pages. That is written by Joel Yoder. We have a rules summary. This is called The Least You Need to Know to Play Magic Realm, created by Stephen McKnight, which is an eight-page rules reference that has all the critical rules sort of all in one place, which is a nice thing. And then, of course, we have the designer of this program, RealmSpeak, available at realmspeak.dokid.com that I've been referring to this whole episode. Designed by Robin Warren. Thank you so much for putting that learning tool together. There's a wiki, a Magic Realm wiki, put together by Peter Morris that is a great reference page and has a lot of new materials for the game. So look into that. I'll put a link to that on the guild. We have Karam. Carthaginian at BoardGameGeek, who completely redid the graphics of Magic Realm and made it available as a print and play to anyone who wants it for free. And it's completely beautiful. A great way to explore into this game. And if you find out you love it, this is the way to do it. Make a print and play with Karam's redesigns. Absolutely beautiful. Bookshelf Games did some videos on instructions and basic tutorial that took that Magic Realm in plain English and sort of read it to video, which really assisted me in starting to learn this game. Plus, he's collected some character example videos, like someone has played the Black Knight, and they put the screen of the Black Knight on there, and they give you advice on strategy for playing the Black Knight. I think there's seven or eight of those up there, so go look at Bookshelf Games. And I just want to thank all of that Magic Realm community there at Board Game Geek. While I was learning this game over the last few months, I had a lot of questions and, and was there posting and got a lot of help from the users there at Board Game Geek being so willing to help a new player out. So thank you to all those people. And a final big thank you to my wife for her understanding and support as I went through the many, many hours of putting together this particular episode. She's always understanding in my craziness to put together these podcasts and letting me have the time to do them. So thank you very much. Just so you're aware, these podcasts take about 10 times longer for me to create than for you to listen to them. So, uh, And especially this one, I had an editing crash, which made me lose about six hours of my work, and I had to do it all over again. So this was the product of 20-plus hours of work. But it is finished, and I, I hope it can be a great help to some of you out there in learning and enjoying this great game. I don't know how I'm going to top this. This was definitely my most ambitious project yet. 
Next time, we'll go back to our roots with a moderate Euro game with episode 21, doing what we know to do best. How to Play Keeps Growing, thank you again for all your support, all your words of encouragement and financial donations. I've received several, so thank you so much, everybody. And look for episode 21 in two to four weeks. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. One, two, three, four... This has been Ryan Stern from the How to Play podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Stern. How to Play is a one-man, independent podcast not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek, and even just thumb announcements of new episodes. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own, and that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast's home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games.